All right, good morning. Good morning, good morning. It is, uh, it's a good day to be at Anthem Church. It's always a good Sunday when we're here at church together, but some days are a little bit different, a little bit special for different reasons. And so today we are starting a brand new sermon series entitled Composing. And what we are discussing during this series, we're discussing what it means to be an anthemer. We're taking about 12 weeks or so to discuss and learn what it means to be part of Anthem Church. And we're hoping to share with everyone what, what it is that we're hoping to accomplish in the lives of individuals, in your lives and in my life as well. So with that quick introduction, let's pray and let's go ahead and just get to work. All right. Uh, Lord Father, gracious Father, I thank you for today. I praise you for this morning, this opportunity that we have to gather here with one another and before you. And, and gracious Lord, I ask that you would give us ears to hear, hearts with which to hear your own heart, Lord. I pray that you would speak to us personally and profoundly. I ask, Lord, that you would draw near to us and do what only you can do, and that is transform us, our hearts, our minds, everything about us, Lord, that we would be transformed by your love, by your grace, that we would experience you and your mercy and your goodness to such an extent, Lord, that we would sing of your glory and that we would live for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. All right. God is the great composer. And God is active in this world as we speak right now. He is composing a beautiful and eternal song. And it's not just a song. It's an anthem. It's an anthem of his glory, the anthem of his renown. What happens is that to, to write an anthem, you require a skilled composer. And that skilled composer, he goes about scoring the anthem by picking the right notes and putting those notes in the right order. And those notes then have to be in right pitch. They have to be in tune with one another. And those notes have to be in right rhythm. So they have to be marching to the same drumbeat. So what do you have? You have a melody, the right notes in the right order, in right rhythm, and in right pitch with one another. But is that all an anthem is? And I would say no, that an anthem is way bigger than the sum of its parts. An anthem is more than just the right notes in the right arrangement, in the right pitch, and in the right rhythm. An anthem is way bigger, way more than just that. What makes an anthem an anthem is what the notes are pointing to collectively. That in an anthem, notes can do more together than they can by themselves, correct? So what is an anthem? It's more than a song. What is an anthem? It is a symbolic song of celebration. It's a song of adoration, affection, loyalty, and commitment. It's a celebration of affection is what it is. It's a song that symbolizes greatness, points us to greatness. It's a song that memorializes what is monumental. That's what an anthem is. And what is amazing, it should absolutely shock us with delight, every single one of us, is that we, each of us, get to be a note in God's song. This beautiful and eternal 
anthem that God is writing, he takes us. We're the notes. And that's amazing. Because we know ourselves, right? How we are, what we do, what we don't do, what we say, what we think. And despite all of that, God takes us as we are. And by his grace, despite all our shortcomings and weaknesses and failures, despite all our sin, he takes us and by his grace, he grafts us into this beautiful song. So it's through the gospel that Jesus is scoring this beautiful and eternal song in this world. It is by God's grace, through faith in God's Son, that we are grafted and scored into God's song. And it's not only, folks, it's not only that God is active in this world writing the song, and it's not only that we get to be individual notes in that song, it's that God is active in us writing a song. That it's through the gospel that God is alive, personally involved in us, composing a very specific song, a beautiful and eternal song, an anthem within our very hearts. And that song is a song of love, faith, and hope. That is what, what God is trying to do with you, with each and every one of us. It's right in us such a song, a beautiful melody, that's in right pitch to God and in right rhythm with God, that resounds in this world and it is loud and that it's beautiful and that it's eternal. And so here at Anthem, we say that a true believer is a person who is love-filled, faith-filled, and hope-filled. Our mission says that, and I repeat this often to keep it in front and before us at all times. What is our mission? Fill Andrew and the world with love-filled, faith-filled, hope-filled followers of Jesus. So let me ask you, why those three? Why love, faith, and hope? Why do we put those at the forefront of all our language and all our phrasing and all our vocabulary here at this church? Why love, faith, and hope? And the reason why is that those three are the three cardinal Christian virtues. They're in, in love and in faith and hope are summed up and summarized and captured and embodied everything that a believer should be. It's in those individuals who display love, faith, and hope that we can say without, with, with very little doubt that they have genuinely converted to the Christian faith. It is those to exemplify love, faith, and hope that we say that individual has confessed to God that they, they are a sinner and they've repented from that way of life. We can say that that individual has sincerely placed their faith in Christ and given their lives over to him and now live as his followers. And it's those who reflect love, faith, and hope in their lives that we can say authentically they have experienced the love of God and tasted of his grace. So this is what God is trying to do. With us. A, a true Christian displays love, faith, and hope in their life. And not only that, they grow in their capacity to do so. And so this is what God is actively doing in our lives. And, this, and God is trying to make us turn us into anthemers, and by that I mean disciples of Jesus, followers of Christ, people who worship God, love God, sing to God, sing with joy and happiness and with smiles on their face, 
and who live the same way, who not only sing anthems to God, but who are themselves living anthems to God. So listen to these scriptures. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2 and 3. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 10 through 12. For God is not just unjust, for God is not unjust, so as to forget your work and the what? Love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And in famously 1 Corinthians chapter 13 verse 13. But now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. And that's why we always put love first. Love, faith, hope. So love, faith, hope are in fact the litmus test for what it means to be a healthy Christian and a healthy church. These are the three virtues that just encompass everything that God desires for us to exemplify in our lives. This is what it means to be an anthemer. Like, this is the kind of life that God is composing in his people, in those who have placed their faith in Christ. So, in this series, what we're looking to do and hoping to do is to define what these three things are. What is love? What is faith? What is hope? And we want to define it in such a way that it gives you such a clear picture that then you can go out on your own and in your time with the Lord, evaluate yourself to know whether or not you are in fact a follower of Christ or whether you're heading in the right direction. We want to put a spiritual target on the wall, something to aim at. And so that's what we're trying to do in this series. Does that sound good? I hope this will be helpful. It better be because I've planned 12 weeks of it. So, uh, if you think otherwise, don't tell me. It'll hurt my feelings. So, all right, let's begin with the first one. L-O-V-E. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. It's really hard to ask the question without <laughs> putting that. And some of the younger folks are like, what does he mean? And they don't know the 80s song or 90s or whenever it was. All right, what is love? Love is interesting in that we really struggle to define what it is and the reason so many people struggle to actually be able to put a definition to love is for a couple of reasons one of them is we so rarely see it it's so rarely like true love it's so rarely displayed well how can we define something if we haven't seen it how can we know what something is if we haven't witnessed it if it if we haven't experienced it So that's one reason. Another reason why we struggle to define what love is is because the world has very much adversely affected our understanding of what love is. The world teaches us that to think of love pretty much merely as a feeling. That's pretty much, and it's more than a feeling, right? Yeah, let's keep them coming. 
But the world teaches us that it's pretty much just simply a feeling. So, and this is particularly the case when it comes to romantic love. So you hear someone say, I'm in love. Well, like Buddy the Elf, I'm in love and love and I don't care who knows. Like what, what a person is communicating when they, when they say I'm in love, what they're saying is I right now am experiencing a frenzy of whimsical, positive, warm and fuzzy emotions as a result of this individual. What the person is communicating is that I am caught underneath an avalanche of cascading endorphins. What the person is saying is my sentiment for this individual, my feelings for this person are such that they are perfect and they can do no wrong. <laughs> and there's laughter in the room. But is that not often what is, what is meant or is behind the words? I'm in love. They're perfect. They can do no wrong. So let me ask you, is that love? And it's a trick question. It's a trick question because love can have very strong affections attached to it. It can have sentiment connected to it. You may even argue that it should. But here's the question. If that's all it is, is that love? And then that's where the answer is a resounding no. If that's all it is, it's not love. It can't be. I would say that that's a counterfeit. That's an imposter dressed up as love. It's not the real thing. It's not the real thing. So imagine that an individual who said, I'm in love, right? And they're thinking this, perfect's per this person's perfect and, and they can do no wrong. I'm in love. And all of a sudden that other person does something wrong. Well, those feelings come to a screeching halt very quickly, right? And then usually or often what happens is that person then says, I have fallen out of love. You know, that, that person I thought was this turned out to be this. They're no longer the person I thought they were. They no longer do it for me. They no longer do anything for me. They don't fill me with happy emotions. The, the emotional energy that I used to draw off of this person is no longer there. I've fallen out of love. So we broke up. And that's usually how that story, that story goes. And I would argue that if that's all it was, if all it was was emotions, it was never love to begin with because in, it, love is not about what I get. Love is only about what I give, period. Love is not about how I feel. Love is about what I do. Love is not about me. It is about the other person. That, folks, is love. That's what true biblical love looks like. It, it is unfortunate that we say that I have fallen into love. You cannot fall into it. When we say we fall into love, what we mean is by accident, by coincidence, by happenstance, I somehow fell into this thing and I cannot help it. And I'm caught up and I'm wrapped up in this thing. And that's not what love is. You cannot fall into love, folks. You have to rise up into love. It is a decision. It is a commitment. It is like a mountain that has to be climbed. You don't accidentally climb a mountain. 
You have to do it intentionally, and it's work. And you'll fall along the way, and you'll trip, and you'll hurt yourself, but you keep climbing. That's what love is. True love is total abandonment. Complete abandonment for the good of another, regardless of what you may or may not get out of it. That's what love is. Total abandonment for the good of another person, regardless of what you may or may not get out of them, out of it. In the simplest of terms, love is this. Love is submission. Love is submission. It is submitting your interest to another person. It is intentionally, with humility, putting the interests of another person, their needs, their wants, their desires, putting them, their agenda, ahead of your own. It is making the other person or someone else more important than you think of yourself. That's love. That's what love looks like. It is complete and total abandonment, serving and sacrificing for another person. It is total abandonment and selfless sacrifice to the point that I honor that individual or to the point that I help that individual. That's what love is. It's devotion, it's dedication, it's allegiance, it's loyalty, steadfast fidelity to another person no matter the cost. And when I define it that way, but how often do we see this? Do we see this throughout our days and in our life? Do we see love on this scale, which is the only scale that there is? You know, the kind of life that God wants to compose in each and every one of us, all of his people, those of us who place our faith in him, is that total abandonment to God in order to honor him and total selflessness toward others, putting their interests ahead of ourselves to help them. Honor and help. That's what love is. That's what love is. Jesus was asked, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And he answered in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 39, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as what? Yourself. Isn't it interesting that Jesus never says anything about loving yourself? Never says anything about self-love. Because self-love is actually a contradiction. Self-love isn't love. Self-love is the opposite of love. Self-love is narcissism and selfishness and self-centeredness. It's egoism. So there is no such thing as self-love, or at least it's not actually love. It's something completely different. Self-love is actually a form of idolatry. Loving myself means I'm putting myself ahead of God, and it means I'm putting myself ahead of others. So by default, I'm elevating myself above everything and everyone else. That's called idolatry. So that's not love. It can't be. By definition, it can't be. Have any of you ever gotten up one morning, spent the entire day making it all about you? I mean, all day, from the time you got up, time you went to bed, it, you're making it all about number one. Your needs, your wants, your desires, everything you want, completely immersed 
in a day of self-love and gone to bed thinking, man, I feel loved today. That sounds odd, right? It's almost perverse to spend all day about me and knowingly and wantonly making it all about me. And I'm doing this for me and I'm doing this for me. And no, I don't care about anyone. I'm taking a me day and it's me and it's me and it's all day. It's me, myself, and I all day long, all day long. And I go to bed like, ah, I feel so loved. Like that's so wrong. It is so completely wrong. Like we can't think that way because the only way to actually feel love is if it's directed from outside of us. Love has to be given, right? That's true love. And what God desires for us is our good. What God desires is what's in our best interest. And God knows that what is in your best interest is for you to turn that love outwardly. So instead of making it about me and myself and my stuff, putting God first and then putting others, and then if there's time, I guess maybe something for me, but then if other Christians are doing it too, they got my back, so I don't have to worry about me. Plus, I got a God who loves me, so he's got it anyway. So I really don't need to think too much about my stuff, my needs, my cares, because God's got it. And other fellow believers, they got it too. So direct the word outwardly, love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, with everything about you. So in other words, with total abandonment. So what does that mean? All in. No restrictions, no reservations, no excuses, no buts. No buts. Living in such a way that it brings honor to God, that it pleases him. And then the other part is, like, love not yourself, but love others. In other words, instead of loving yourself, love others. So serve them sacrificially, selflessly. Put their interests ahead of your own. Like, take someone else's cares and burdens upon yourself. It's what Jesus is saying. Help those who are in need. Go out of your way to do so. That's what it means to be love-filled. Sound easy? All right, let's, let's try to take some steps toward making it easy, easier. All right, to begin to live a life as a love-filled follower of Jesus, we've got to understand what maybe it looks like in everyday life or practically. So let's unpack it a little bit further. What does it mean to be love-filled? God first, others, right? So it means displaying gen- gratitude toward God in my life and displaying generosity toward others in my life. This is how we define or describe what love is. Submit, submitting your interest to someone else, to God and others, and then showing gratitude, displaying gratitude toward God, and displaying generosity toward others. That's what it looks like. Next week, we'll discuss a little bit more about, or we'll discuss what generosity looks like. In the time that we have left here, we're just going to take a quick look at what gratitude looks like. What, is, what does it mean to live a life of gratitude toward God? And what you've got to know is that love for God begins with gratitude toward God. You cannot love God if you're not grateful for him or to him in any way. So Jesus said in John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you will keep 
my commandments. And what Jesus is saying in that verse is that if you love God, you will display that love through your obedience to God. By keeping his word and knowing what his commands are and walking in the ways of Jesus, following in his his footsteps. So if you love God, you will live that way. But in order for that to be real love, it has to be motivated by gratitude. Because if we are obeying God or attempting to obey God without gratitude, that's called compulsion. Like, I don't want to. And... I guess I have to, but I don't want to. That's not love. That's not what obeying God and loving God looks like. It's not out of compulsion. It's not attempting to be obedient as some kind of mechanical robot, like legalistically adhering to the strict letter of the law with no affection toward God. So that's not what God is interested in. God is interested in individuals that love him so much that they say, yes, sir, I will listen, I will obey, not because I have to, but because I want to. So loving God begins with gratitude. And and I spend probably most of my personal Bible reading time just in the book of Psalms. Um, I love the whole Bible, but there's just something about the Psalms that I just, I love reading. I can't get enough of. It's, it's, if I had to have one book of the Bible, that would be it. And it's amazing how the book of Psalms just shines this incredible light and, and shows us the, how important, how vitally important it is for a believer to live with a spirit of gratitude in their life. A gratitude toward God. And, and the book of Psalms is really good at connecting the the. The, uh, the relationship between loving God, obeying God, being grateful to God, worshiping, all of that, putting it all together. So I just want to read a few psalms here just to bring it out. Psalm chapter 9, verse 1. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart. Psalm eighty six twelve. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart and will glorify your name. Psalm 50, verse 23, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. And Psalm 69, 30, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. And these verses just show us right there what it means to be a grateful follower of Jesus. Living at all times, always, in all ways, before God with a grateful heart. Worshiping him because we love him. Loving him because we're grateful for him. And as a result, serving him and sacrificing for him. That, folks, is what it means to be an anthemer. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. It is the joy that comes from knowing what God has done for you. It is knowing that he loves you deeply. All right. Now, I like always dialing down. All right. So, all right, that sounds right. But how do I do that? Like, how do I begin to live with gratitude toward God all the time? So, because you asked, turn with me to Deuteronomy 16. And we're going to see in Deuteronomy 16, it's in the Old Testament. It's the fifth book of the Bible. It's right after Numbers. It's right before Joshua. And chapter 16 is where we're going to. And just real quick, I just want to show everyone here some keys to growing in gratitude toward, toward God. There are a few thoughts here in this chapter, I believe, that can help us to be love-filled. 
and some thoughts in this chapter that can help us to grow in our gratitude toward God. So we're looking, again, we're just going to skim Deuteronomy 16. As you're turning there, so let me bring everyone up to speed on what's been going on. Israel, God's people, they were enslaved in Egypt. They were under the tyranny of an oppressive tyrant, Pharaoh. He mistreated God's people. They cry out to God. God hears them. In mercy, God raises up a deliverer, Moses. Moses goes, confronts Pharaoh, trying to get him to let the people go, to get the people to release them out of bondage. So God intervenes into the mess there in Egypt. He flexes his divine power, and then God does what only God can do, and ultimately Pharaoh relents, and he lets the people go. And the people are out, and they're on their way. All is well and is good, but it turns out that the people are fairly stubborn and stiff-necked, very disobedient. Uh, you could say that. They're not faith-filled. They, they don't trust God all that much, and as a result, God punishes the entire nation, and they have to walk around in the desert for 40 years. For 40 years, walking around in the desert because of their lack of faith. And it's in Deuteronomy 16 that we're actually about to walk into the promised land. So they've, they've gone through the 40 years. They're on the brink of entering the land that God has promised to them. And, and Moses writes the book of Deuteronomy to remind the Israelites what's expected of them and how to live once they get into the land. And specifically in Deuteronomy 16, Moses instructs the Israelites that there's three great annual feasts that they're to celebrate every year. These are huge national religious holidays, big old parties and celebrations, three times a year, three different ones that they're to observe. The first one is the Feast of the Passover. The next one's the Feast of Weeks. The next one's the Feast of Booths. And the point of these three annual celebrations is to compose in God's people gratitude, to make them love-filled. That's the point of them. So what we're going to see here is there's three keys, I think, to help us to develop gratitude toward God. The first one is that we would point our hearts to God. The second one is that we would point our hearts to the past. And the third one is that we would point our hearts to the future. Point your heart to God, point it to the past, and point it to the future. So the first one, gratitude requires pointing our hearts to God. Look at verses 1 and 2. Observe the month of Abib and celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. You shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God. Look at verse 10. Then you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God. And then again in verse 15. Seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God. I believe it is amazing how much insight can be found in such a little word. A two-letter word, T-O, two. It's theologically full of meaning. In Deuteronomy 16 and elsewhere in the Bible, God's people are to do things to the Lord, 
celebrate to the Lord. Sacrifice to the Lord. That As Christians, we're supposed to do everything to the Lord. Repeatedly, repeatedly do it to the Lord, to the Lord, to the Lord. And normally, we think of doing things for the Lord. And not that that's wrong. But there's a difference between doing something for the Lord and doing something to the Lord. When we do something for the Lord, it's as if we're doing it on his behalf. When we do something to the Lord, we're doing it before him. We're doing it unto him. We're rendering service in such a way as if we're doing it in his very presence. We're doing it to him. That's different. We're to do things to, to the Lord. And what does that mean? That means when you do what you do, you do it with your heart turned toward him. You direct yourself, everything about you, your heart, you direct it at God. You do what you do while you are facing God. You do it to him. And if we would just begin to do everything in our lives to the Lord. What an amazing difference that would make in our lives. Consider who he is. He is the maker of all things, which means that he himself was not made. He is self-existent and dependent upon nothing but himself. He is the creator and the sustainer of life. The very fact that I am standing here is only because he saw fit to create me. That I can walk and talk and feel and do and that I can even breathe is nothing less than God's gracious gift. What have I ever done that God owes me anything? And in what way can I render service to someone who needs nothing? Because I cannot add to God. I cannot improve God. He is infinite perfection. And despite his greatness and my meekness, he invites me and he invites all of us to know him. To come close to him and to allow him to wrap us with his love. For us to know his wisdom. For us to be actually comforted by his power. And so he invites us to know his glory, to share in who he is. And everything about him. And so the question is, how do you respond to that? How do you respond to such an invitation? Great God beckoning and calling you close to him. How do you respond to that? Humble gratitude. You turn your heart toward him. He's God. I'm not. He's holy. I'm a sinner. Yet, despite all that, he calls me near. What do I do with that? Humble gratitude. 
It can't be, it can't be any, anything else. Turn my heart, turn your heart to the Lord and live in such a way that you're living to the Lord, not just for him, but unto him, before him, in his presence every day, every moment of every day. It is shockingly disturbing how we can do what we do and do it not to the Lord. We go to work, go to school, go to church, oftentimes with little to no thoughts of God. We serve in a ministry, we put money in a basket, go on a mission trip, even read our Bibles, and often do so without thinking about God. It's amazing how much we do, and we do it to check off a list. We do it to make ourselves feel good. We make ourselves, we do it to, to, to look good, to feel good. We do it for any reason but to the Lord. Just imagine the difference that it would make if every day you got up and you did what you did to the Lord? What if every day you got up and you reminded yourself who God is? You point your heart to God. All-powerful, all-loving, ever-present, always near, always good. God, who desires what is in your best interest. What if you thought about that every day? We would begin to do things to the Lord. You would be filled with gratitude, and you'd start loving him more. And then when you obey, you would be doing it not because you have to, but because you want to. So that's the first thing. We, gratitude requires pointing our hearts to God. The second thing it requires is that it's pointing our hearts to the past. In Deuteronomy 16, Moses reminds Israel how to celebrate the Passover meal. And so what they're to do, they're to take a lamb and they're to sacrifice this lamb and fix it a certain way, prepare it along with the lamb. They're also to eat some other stuff in verse 3. Moses is writing, he says, You shall not eat leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, so that you may remember all the days of your life, all, in, in all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. So the point of Passover, of one of these celebrations that God said, Hey, do this, the point of it is to be a reminder. A reminder of what God has done. They were enslaved in Egypt. They were in bondage. And so remember, God brought you out of that. The same is true of the Feast of Weeks. So in verse 12, it says, You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. So if you're a Christian, if you are actually a follower of Christ, it is important for you to know how easy it is to forget the gospel. We are quick, quick to lose sight of Christ and what he has done for us. 
All of us were born into captivity. Every single one of us came into this world oppressed. And it wasn't some dictator in a foreign land. We're oppressed by our own sin. We come into this world sinners with a disposition that is disposed to be antagonistic toward God in every way. But we're coming to this world at war with the Lord, at war with him, enemies, hostile, willingly, deliberately ignoring him, mocking him, ignoring his word, neglecting him in, in everything. And to make it worse, we come under this sin and there is this, this, this knowledge that we are going to suffer from the eternal consequences of our sin. God has revealed that there is any consequence to our sin. And so we're trapped, helpless and hopeless. And what does God do? He raises up a deliverer, Jesus. Jesus comes, for God so loved the world, he sent his only son. Jesus comes into this world. He lives the sinless life that we should live. And he goes to a cross, and on that cross, he does the most amazing, wonderful thing any of us could ever imagine. He takes your guilt and your shame upon himself, and he deals with it so that you no longer have to. He did war on the cross to free you from captivity to sin. So that you may have eternal life, not eternal consequences. That's the gospel. You know, earlier I said that we have a hard time defining what love is, but what I think is easier is describing what love is. And love is Jesus on a cross, shedding his blood and dying that you may have life forever. That's love. That's love. That's the gospel. So what do we need to do each and every day? We need to point our hearts to God, but we need to point our hearts to the past. We need to point our hearts, remind ourselves constantly every day what Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago. Gospel yourself. Preach the gospel to yourself at all times. Folks, count your blessings. Count your blessings. Like, like if you have a job, praise God. If you have family and friends and a good church, and if you've got health, if you've got anything, everything, whatever you have, give thanks to God. He's a good father. He's the giver of good gifts. So give him thanks. Give him his props, his kudos for blessing you to the extent that he has. But may it be that when you're counting your blessings, that above all, first and foremost, if you are a follower of Christ, thank him that your name is written in heaven. That first and foremost, that Jesus gave his life, that you have life. Thank him, praise him for the gospel. For that day, whether it was last week or 10 years ago or, or before that, that day that you accepted him, thank him for that day that he worked in your heart and moved you toward him. Praise him. Give thanks to him. How do you, how do, you do this? Tie, tie a string around your finger. Put post-it notes around your house in your car, at your desk. Listen to Christian music. Do whatever you have to to keep the gospel before you at all times. And as you do that, your gratitude toward God will increase and you will be love-filled. Number one, gratitude requires pointing your hearts to God. Number two, it requires pointing your hearts to the past. Number three, it requires pointing your heart to the future. Look at verse 15 again. 
Seven days you shall celebrate a feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses, because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the works of your hands, so that you will be altogether joyful. You should show gratitude to God toward him because of what he will do. What is God going to do? What has he promised to do? What is it that God will do? He will provide. He will protect. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus will come back. A trumpet in heaven will sound. Angels will get into formation. Heavens will be parted. And the king of glory will descend back on this earth. And when he does so, he will gather all of his people unto himself. All who have placed their faith in him will be gathered unto him and he will personally escort us all together into the very courtrooms of heaven where he will wipe away every tear and he will restore every heart and he will mend every brokenness and he will make it to where we sit down at a feast and celebrate and celebrate at his glory forever Folks, just think about what it is that he has promised. Think about what it is that he will do. Turn your hearts to the future. The gospel isn't only something back then. It's something that's coming as well. And what I understand is that life, like this isn't it. Life here isn't it. When life ends here it doesn't end it goes there's something else after this life and for a follower of jesus that life is a life in heaven at his feet enjoying the comforts of his glory forever and ever and it's a life that we do not deserve and it's a life that we do not earn it's a life that is completely given to you as a free gift through jesus christ so what do you do how do you react to that Gratitude. Humble gratitude. It's if we would only begin to just always place God before us every day in everything we do. And when it gets challenging, think about the gospel and everything that he has done and everything that he will do, what a difference it would make in our lives. You know what would begin to happen? In you would be composed love. Love toward God. Gratitude toward God. What a beautiful song that would be in an individual to walk around with gratitude toward Christ all the time. So that's a beautiful song. What about a group of people, a church, a body? 
where all of them are filled with gratitude toward the Lord. I wonder what they could accomplish in this world. So let me ask you, are you filled with gratitude? Are you filled with gratitude toward God? Now, I don't know your hearts. That's between you and the Lord. If, it, if your answer to that question is no, it may very well be that you've never had a moment where you have partaken of God's grace. Because gratitude begins with the gospel. Gratitude begins the moment that we place our faith in Christ and we confess our sin and we repent of our sin. We place our faith in him and we give our lives over to him. So we submit, we relent, and we establish him as Lord of our lives. That's when gratitude begins. That's where life begins. That's where love begins. So gratitude begins with the gospel. But it's not just that gratitude begins with the gospel. The gospel fuels gratitude. Like gratitude is the echo of God's grace resounding in our hearts and through our lives. So if you are a follower of Christ and you've been living in such a way that you haven't been experiencing gratitude toward God or living in gratitude toward God, repent. God loves you. He loves you more than you can possibly know. And how do you respond? You respond in kind. You love him back. Be grateful. Be grateful for God for loving you to the extent that he has. And then commit, starting today, commit to living your life to the Lord. Turn your heart to him so that everything you do, you do it to him. Commit every day to remember the gospel, to turn your heart to the past, to what Jesus has done. And commit yourself to think about what he has promised, what he will do to the future. And if you do those things over time, this beautiful song is going to be composed in your heart. And you will be filled with gratitude and you will be filled with love of God. We folks are Anthem Church. May it be that we be a church filled with love-filled people who are grateful to God with grateful hearts. May it spill over as we sing to the Lord. May we sing anthems to God with grateful hearts. And may we live lives as anthems to God in gratitude to Him. May Psalm 107 verse 22 be spoken of all of us. Let them also offer sacrifices of thanksgiving and tell of His works with joyful singing. I'm going to ask everyone just to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to give you just a moment to respond and reflect where you are. Do you love God? Are you grateful to the Lord? Do you do things to the Lord? today the day that you, under, you realize that you've never actually placed your faith in Christ and that today is the day and you want to 
be a person who has faith in this beautiful picture of what God has done for you and the sacrifice of Christ. And you want to be someone that can hold out those promises, those beautiful promises with certainty. If that's you, right now where you are, between you and the Lord, just ask him to forgive you. Ask for his grace. And pledge your life to him. And if you are a follower of Christ and you've been living in such a way where you're devoid of gratitude and thanksgiving, ask for God's grace. Ask Him to help you to always put things in place, doing all things to Him, and to keep His promises before you at all times. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the opportunity to gather in this place. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your presence. I thank you for your spirit. I thank you for the conviction that you bring upon us. I thank you for all the blessings that we enjoy, Lord, the breath in our lungs, all your provisions. We thank you for our church family. We thank you for what you're doing at and through this church, Lord. But first and foremost, we thank you for the gift of your son, for the love that you have displayed toward us and that you so freely offer. Lord, and I pray now that gratitude would spill over into commitment. pray now, Lord, that we would be a people that live to you. Lord, as, as a pastor, I just I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room. I pray that you would just fill them with a grateful heart. Lord, and that it would resonate in their lives as they go throughout their week. That they would sing of your glory and live for your glory at all times. And that as a result, that you would draw others towards you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing a closing anthem to the Lord.